So we are the Joneses, the newest members of the faith family of Global Partners. And today's scripture reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe that was me, I don't know. So you know that kind of sickness where your nose is just running constantly and so you're constantly sort of trying to take care of it and after about a week of that, your nose is raw and red and swollen and all of that? I've been sick for a couple weeks and the first week was that kind of sick. Uh, and so then my wife offered this uh, novel new treatment. She handed me a tube of Aquaphor which is like a medicated Vaseline, and she told me to apply it liberally to the affected area. And I was groggy from being up all night blowing my nose, so I put it all over and hustled out the door to get to uh, my Starbucks meeting for that morning. It wasn't until I got home and looked in the mirror to start getting ready for work that I realized just how disgusting a moist, glistening, ruby red Rudolph of a nose looks in public. Um, so I'm, I'm publicly apologizing to the person I met that morning as well as anyone else in Starbucks who may have seen me, which explains why the person I met kind of first thing they said was, are you feeling okay? <laughs> well, no, actually. See, the thing about mirrors is they only work if you look in them. And they only save you from embarrassment if you look in them in time, if, you know, before the embarrassment. If I had, had only looked in the mirror before going and running to this quick appointment and then coming home to get ready for work, I, I might not have you know, slathered this stuff all over my face and then sat in public for an hour like that. Mirrors only work if you look in them. How about I use this one? Now I feel like a lounge singer of some sort, so I'm like just... <laughs> Mirrors only, mirrors only work if you look in them, right? If you don't open your eyes and face the glass, nothing can change. It, it, they don't lie, but they don't work if you don't look. We're spending six weeks in Jonah, uh, what we're calling Jonah the world's worst missionary, because Jonah gives us the opportunity to hold up a mirror to ourselves. Jonah gives us the chance to look in the glass and see if maybe... There isn't a little bit of ourselves looking back out at us. And maybe, maybe by looking, we'll learn a little bit, a little something that, that'll help us as we start to think about being winsome, informed ambassadors for Christ to the culture around us. Maybe we have something to learn from the world's worst missionary. So turn to Jonah, uh, and as you're turning there, it is on page 920 
of this black Bible that's under the seat in front of you. I give you the page number because every time I have turned to Jonah this week, I have had to do the Iwana recitation in my head of all the prophets, right? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. There it is. So open it up, find the Psalms, go right. If you hit the New Testament, you went too far, or just look it up on your Bible app. Maybe that'll be faster. Jonah, uh, as we turn here and as we, we look at what we have to learn from Jonah, I, I want to I want to introduce the whole book for a bit and kind of give you some of the, the themes that we're going to see. So Jonah, we're calling the world's worst missionary. We may, maybe could have called him the world's first missionary. Uh, never before had God spoken to any of the prophets of Israel and said, go to this other country. Uh, he had said plenty of times, preach against this other country, but not go to them. Jonah's the first to be called out of the boundary of Israel, to head out to a pagan nation, a Gentile nation, a non-God-worshipping country. But we're calling him the world's worst missionary because Jonah's hang-up, as we'll discover as we go through this story and the different ways he reacts, you know, first he tries to get out of doing God's will by running away from God, then he tries to get out of doing God's will by obeying God, which is another way it's possible to do that. Uh, and we're going to explore that over the next six weeks. But Jonah is the worst missionary precisely because he was so religious. Sometimes religious people make the worst missionaries because the message for us, we think, is for us and not for everyone. We're going to explore that as we go through Jonah. Now, a lot of the sort of modern retellings of this story focus on the fish, Right, the great big fish. It's a whale of a tail. It's a fable for the table. Whatever. It's uh, it's a cool story about how God used a fish to you know get to 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 spank a, a prophet who wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. The author of Jonah, uh, who put the book together, doesn't focus on the fish hardly at all. It's in two verses. It's sort of like and then the fish happened and then he moves on. Uh, I, I guess you would expect if this were fiction that he would sensationalize the whole fish thing, and then this giant fish, right, and, and would try to get a little more mileage out of it, but he doesn't. He just says it, it happened. Uh, if, as a Christian, as a believer, you accept the uh, miracle of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is a lot bigger miracle than a big fish, um, then there's really no problem with saying that, hey, the uh, creator God of the universe can use a storm and a fish and a plant and a worm and the sun to, you know, make a point to one of his prophets. Uh, but if you don't accept the miracle of Jesus's death and resurrection, I am glad you're here uh, because I don't think there's any better place than faith to explore and find out if Christianity is true or not. And so being here, I hope I'm, I'm excited about the next couple of minutes when I get to show you how this story points ahead to Jesus, the Jesus we read about in the New Testament. So there's a lot going on uh, behind the scenes in Jonah, and as we sort of set the stage this morning, as we look at just these first three verses, Act 1, Scene 1 of Jonah, uh, these are the themes we've, we've got to get in mind, the, the background of who this guy is, what he's been called to do in order to understand what comes in the next, uh, the next five parts of the book of Jonah. So Act 1, Scene 1, Jonah, the world's worst missionary, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. As we go through these verses... Verse 1, we're going to be introduced to the man, Jonah. Verse 2, his mission. And verse 3, his mutiny. Do you like the alliteration there? The man, the mission, the mutiny. Now you can follow along and see where we're going. Let's start with the man, Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1. Boy, with this mic here, it's a lot harder to use the table. 
Oh well. All right, verse one. So verse one, what do we know about Jonah? Jonah the man. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and that's it. We don't know anything more about him from here. Now there's a couple of really interesting things that don't, don't often, or they don't really come through in English. Now the word of the Lord came again to Jonah. There's sort of an implication that Jonah is, like this is one in a series of revelations to Jonah, one in a series of stories about Jonah the prophet. So he's, he's large in the public consciousness. Jonah's known, uh, almost like a, a folk hero in the sense that we would think of like a George Washington or a Ben Franklin or something like that. Jonah is known. There's stories about Jonah. We sadly only have the one. Uh, there's others that apparently have been lost to time, but Jonah was a national figure. Actually, he shows up in uh, 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah shows up there uh, during the reign of King Jeroboam. All right, so I'm going to go history nerd here for a second. Uh, after the, the whole kingdom of Israel had divided into two, you know, you had the majority in the north called Israel, the smaller part in the south called uh, Judah, uh, Jonah is operating in Israel, the northern part. And at this point in time, uh, there's this new king on the scene. His name's Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. Now, Assyria, of which Nineveh is the capital, Assyria had been oppressing Israel up until this point. There was a really strong king who had, had raised the, uh, the, the stature of Nineveh uh, almost to the point of its glory days. Those are to come later. But raises the statue of Nineveh largely on the backs of nations around him that he oppressed and exacted tribute from. So Israel has been paying tribute to Nineveh for generations at this point. When that king dies, Assyria is thrown into disarray. Uh, what are we going to do now? Well, that's an opportunity for Jeroboam, the king of Israel, to sort of step up and say, no, we're, we're taking our land back. We're taking our honor back. We're going to take, take back what God has given to us. And through Jonah, God actually predicted in 2 Kings, uh, I will restore to you some of these lands that had been taken away. So through Jonah, uh, God is saying, yes, and this, this ends up working out that uh, King Jeroboam takes the uh, armies and basically expands back into some of their ancestral territory. So Assyria is sort of on the decline. Israel is on the rise at this point. This is good. There are other prophets, Hosea, Amos, and a few others, who have, and then even some more prophets who are going to continue to predict that Assyria is, is eventually going to be wiped off the map. God is going to judge Assyria for their cruelty, for their wickedness, and he's going to destroy Assyria, destroy Nineveh. Uh, there's, I think it's Amos. The whole book is essentially about the destruction of Nineveh to come. So Jonah's operating at this, this same time. Now, what's interesting is Amos, Hosea, some of these other guys, besides just preaching against Nineveh, they also have a problem with Jeroboam. Uh, the king of Israel, we're told, is not a great king. He, he did not walk, or he walked in the ways of his wicked fathers. And Amos, Hosea, these other guys, they don't have a problem preaching against Jeroboam and against the royal government, the royal administration. They say, you too will be judged. In fact, Assyria will probably judge you. They'll be the ones who come in and judge you at some point unless you turn, unless you repent. Jonah, in the records we have, uh, never... He doesn't ever prophesy along those lines. Uh, one, one commentator wrote about this. He took all of this backstory and he summarized it by saying, you know, when Jonah's introduced, no background info is given, so Jonah needed no introduction. The original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as intensely patriotic, a highly partisan nationalist. 
Jonah was pro-Israel, anti-Assyria all the way. Uh, he, he was a, essentially a, a hero of Israel and Israel's uh, sort of military expansion. So Jonah is, we can infer, uh, an actual prophet, an actual person of whom this story that we get in these four chapters of the book of Jonah is a, a literary telling of an actual event from his life. I say literary telling, that doesn't mean that it's false or untrue or that it didn't actually happen. What it means is that the author of this short story, uh, Jonah himself or maybe somebody who came after him, is very carefully crafting the story in two acts, two episodes, three scenes in each episode, uh, to get across a point about who God is and what his grace means, both for Jonah, for Nineveh, for Assyria, and for us. That's Jonah the man, a staunchly religious, pro-Israel, anti-Assyria, pro-military strength, religious fundamentalist prophet. And then God shows up. That's in verse 2, the mission. And actually, before we jump to verse 2, take a look again at verse 1. Do you see where it says the word of the Lord? Uh, Lord in your, your Bible is probably in small caps. It's, it's in smaller uppercase letters. Uh, that's to clue us in that the Hebrew word behind Lord is Yahweh, uh, the covenant name for God, the name of his relationship, the name that he gave Moses when he said, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. Yahweh has sent you. Uh, it's the personal name of God that he's only given to uh, the Israelite nation saying, I have a relationship with you. Jonah is an official prophet, an official prophet of Israel, and God shows up, the covenant God whose name he knows shows up and says, go. This isn't just a random voice from the wilderness. This is the God Jonah knows saying, go. Now, if you're uh, reading along in the Names of God study that we're doing over the summer, uh, you've read this last week or you'll read this coming week other passages in which God's covenant name, Yahweh, is shared. I hope that you know, what you've learned about God from that name that you'll write on the panels uh, downstairs where we're all uh, sharing our reflections about who God is. Because we've said going into this Names of God study that some of us are doing, names mean something. And in Jonah, only two characters are named. God and Jonah. Everyone else is anonymous. They are background characters to the main conflict, the the main struggle happening between the covenant God of Israel and his prophet Jonah. All right, back to verse 2, the mission. What does God say? He says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Arise and go. It's it's two commands, two verbs that are sort of smashed into one, so it has this sense of um, immediacy. Get up and go. Get off your tail and go. Don't, Don't wait. Don't dawdle. Don't try to make plans. Just go. Go immediately. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And you know, any, anybody hearing this, reading this at the time, hears Nineveh and immediately just gets this pit of the stomach dread feeling. Nineveh is not nice. I was talking with my daughter a little bit yesterday about what I'd be preaching today, and she said, I know Nineveh's not nice. They slap people with fish, <laughs> which I, I assume is from a VeggieTales movie. I told her, it, they may, may have done that, but it's actually a lot worse. <laughs> um, they, 
they were probably best described as a terrorist state. Uh, one historian said, you cannot find a crueler history than the history of Assyria. It's personified by Nineveh. They would boast of military conquests in, in which entire uh, fields were left strewn with carcasses. You couldn't walk without stepping on the dead. The royally commissioned artwork uh, in the temples, in the throne room, in the, the castle, whatever that's called, uh, were of bas-relief sculptures of people getting decapitated, tortured, dismembered. If they conquered a people and took them captive, they would cut off, they would take a group of the people, cut off their, their legs and one arm so that they could mockingly shake hands with the remaining arm and while they watched them bleed to death. They would force friends and family members to parade the heads of their loved ones through the towns that they had just conquered. They would pull out people's tongues, burn young men and women alive, tie them up with ropes so that they could flay their skin and then hang them from the city walls. The human rights violations of the city of Nineveh and the country of Assyria are egregious. This is no ordinary evil. This is some of the worst possible ways to treat other human beings. And God says to Jonah, get up, go and call out against it. Call out against it is one of those biblical ways of saying preach condemnation to it. Judge it with your words. Call out against it because their evil has come up before me. And it, it, it's evocative phrasing. Evil is personified as a person who has walked into God's throne room right before his face and said, look at me. Look what I can do. God says, their evil is so offensive to me, it's entered into my very presence. I can't get, get away from seeing it. I want you to go call out against them. Which would be awesome for this hyper-nationalistic prophet if he could just send a letter, right? Uh, Dear Nineveh, uh, 40 days and God will destroy you. As always, I have the honor to be your obedient servant, Jonah. Prophet of the Most High God, right? It'd be great if you could just send a letter, send the letter out, send it with a neutral third party, whatever, and it goes, and you can just sit back and say, God is going to judge Nineveh. But God doesn't say, hey, write a letter to Nineveh. He had done that to other prophets, but not for Jonah. For Jonah, he says, get up, go. Go to Nineveh. Go to that great city. Call out against it. Preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now, how do you think a guy like Jonah, a Israel first kind of hyper-nationalist who can't wait to see Israel's most feared and hated enemy destroyed, how do you think he would react? I gotta imagine, if he's like me, there's some theological justification going on sort of in the back of his mind. God, you've already predicted through my buddies, Amos, Hosea, you've already predicted that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. So if I go preach to them and tell them they're going to be destroyed, I know what kind of God you are. See, actually, there's some stuff kind of being hidden in the first chapter that doesn't come out until the last chapter, until chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where we find out what's going on in Jonah's head. But spoiler alert, I'll let you, let you in on it now. Jonah's looking at God saying, I know what kind of a God you are. If I'm going to go preach judgment, you also want me to preach repentance and forgiveness and mercy and grace. 
But if I don't go, and you don't have anyone to preach for you, you'll have to destroy them. That's what you said you were going to do. It's a win-win for Jonah if he runs in the opposite direction. Because his country, the good guys, the Israelites, will get to continue on the ascendancy, ascendancy, and the bad guys, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, will continue to decline through God's perfectly just punishment. Jonah says, God, how in the world can you ask me to go preach repentance, to preach judgment and forgiveness to these evil people who have wronged you and wronged your people? How can you possibly ask me to go and tell them who you are? They don't deserve, they don't deserve to know you, much less be in a relationship with you. How could you possibly ask me to go? So Jonah does what's probably the only thing left for him. He mutinies. He says, I'm not taking that message. Not least because they'll kill him first day in. Right? It's, it's analogous to a, a Jewish rabbi being called to go preach repentance in Nazi Germany in, in Berlin in 1945. How long do you think he's going to last? She's like, I'm not going. And so, verse 3, the mutiny. We have this staunchly religious, pro-Israel, anti-Assyrian, aggressively pro-military, nationalist, religious fundamentalist uh, being called to uh, preach judgment against Israel's most feared, most hated enemy. So he rose, verse 3 tells us, so Jonah arose, and for a second there you think he arose to go. Uh, but reality catches up. No, he rose to flee, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, what's going on in Jonah's head? I'm not exactly sure. Did he think by going to Tarshish, the, basically the ends of the earth, he could get away from God's presence? Maybe. Uh, maybe he saw God as simply a regional God who had power in Israel and in Jerusalem and in Judah, Judea, uh, but not really any farther beyond that. So if he got outside the, away from the temple, outside of the borders of Israel, maybe he could be away from the presence of God. So he arose to flee to Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa, which is a port city on the Mediterranean that was not under Israelite control, so he's not going to run into anybody there that he knows or anybody who's, who would recognize him as a, a prophet, uh, where he can you know, buy passage on a ship headed in the opposite direction without being harassed. He, he goes down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, and found, it's like he discovered, he happened upon, he chanced upon a ship going to Tarshish. Oh, it's almost divine providence here that's giving him this way out. The ships that go to Tarshish and back, they come back to port once every three years. So you don't see them that often. And he says, exactly what I was looking for. The ship that I needed, it's almost like, it's almost like God is making a way. I mean, he's opening doors and windows and the back door and every other opening in a house. Like, he's, he's opening all of it. He's making it so obvious that this is where I, I should go. And so he pays the fare, and he goes down into the ship. And the word down is repeated twice in that verse and two more times uh, in the first two chapters of Jonah. It's, many have pointed out literarily, it's very interesting. Jonah goes down to Joppa and then down into the ship and then down into the bowels of the ship 
and then down into a fish, and then down in chapter 2, all the way down to where he says, the roots, uh, to the roots of the mountains, to the land whose bar is closed upon me forever. All of Jonah's forward momentum, until he recognizes who God is and what he's called him to do, all of his forward momentum is down. He just keeps going down. And he gets in this ship going west. God had said, go east. So he went west. God had said, go over land. So he went to the sea. God said, go to the city. So he bought a one-way ticket to the end of the world. What would you have done? What do you think you would have done if you'd been called to preach repentance, grace, and forgiveness to your worst enemies, to the people who had caused you the most pain in your life, to the people whose very memory, when it comes up, makes you just get angry? What would you have done if God had said, hey, I love them as much as I love you? Would you have gone? This mirror that we're holding up in front of ourselves is a, I don't know, it's sort of, to me it feels like a self-condemning mirror because I saw way more of myself in Jonah than I wanted to see this week while I was studying. It's easy to read the book of Jonah in sort of a contemporary um, black and white way, right? Jonah bad, God good. Except when we look into Jonah and we see his humanity and we see what he's struggling with and what he's wrestling with, it's so easy to see ourselves in this prophet, this man. Let, let me give you some, some examples. Maybe you, uh, maybe you see yourself in Jonah this way. Maybe you see yourself in Jonah in the staunchly religious nationalist security through military strength religious fundamentalist who believes that the best way for God's people to flourish is if God's enemies are destroyed. That's our prophet. Or maybe, I mean, it's possible to see yourself in the sort of one-dimensional picture of God that Jonah holds onto, the one-dimensional God he worships, who, who is very simple. He punishes the bad people, Ninevites, and he blesses the good people, the Israelites. The God for whom a message of grace and mercy and forgiveness is a beautiful message for people like me. Not for people like Assyrians. Not for the residents of Nineveh. They don't deserve grace, forgiveness, the love of God. They don't deserve it like I do. Maybe you see yourself in a reluctant prophet who can't stand the idea that God loves the people who've hurt us as much as he loves us, that he loves them to the same extent to which he loves us, that God loves the cheating husband, the unfaithful wife. God loves the rebellious teenager or the disobedient child. He loves the vindictive boss. 
God loves the, uh, the MAGA hat wearing guy, the liberal snowflake, the reproductive rights defender, the pro-life crusader, the avowed socialist, the committed capitalist, the never Trumper and the white nationalist as much as he loves you. Are you okay with a God like that? Are you okay with, the, with a God who loves the people who are other than us? Because Jonah's view of God, the God he worships, is a one-sided, nationalistic, Israel-only God. And then the true God shows up. And one commentator says, every time the true God shows up in Jonah's life, he gets frustrated or falls into despair. Because the real God is not the God he had been worshiping. It's not the God that he wanted. It's not the God that he desires. Now, of course, there's other ways we can see ourselves in Jonah. Maybe we see ourselves in the, the sense of Jonah being like, God, I'll, I'll, I'll take your message. I'll go wherever you want as long as it's not inconvenient or difficult or hard or at danger of my life or if I have to learn another language or anything like that. Right? Like, God, send me anywhere. Easy. I'd be happy to go. Or maybe we see ourselves in, in Jonah's approach to actively running away from God. You know, there, there are multiple ways of running away from God. Jonah tried to do it geographically. Sometimes we can do it just by uh, letting Netflix roll over to the next episode uh, and spending night after night after night anesthetizing ourselves in front of entertainment and just saying, well, I'll think about that tomorrow. Right now, episode two starting. Or the other way, and probably the way most of us are susceptible to, uh, the other way we can run away from God is by doing so many good things for him, so many great ministry things, so many good opportunities, so much serving that he couldn't possibly call me to anything else. I'm already so busy. God, look at all that I'm doing for you. I don't have room for your calling. I'm doing all this good stuff that you want me to do. And we can say, God... I okay, it feels like you're pulling me in that direction, but not now. I'm doing too many other good things. Who, who's going to do them if I don't? And so we run away from God by our very obedience. Obedience and disobedience are both ways of putting God at arm's length because both ways we're like, no, I'm, I'm good. I can take care of myself. Whew, look into the mirror. What do you see? Do you see a Jonah that looks an awful lot like you? I see a Jonah that looks an awful lot like me. The guy who wants to use his intellect to figure everything out, arrange all of the stuff. The, the guy who wants to say, okay, God, you know, uh, I know you've said this in Scripture, so if I do that and I pray towards this end, then you're going to have to reward me or bless us in this way. I can, I can figure all that out and kind of go through all the hoops and hurdles in my mind to, to make it happen and say, Okay, God, I know what you've said is this, but what you really mean is, now let's do that. It's convicting. Jonah's not a bad guy. He's human. He's a prophet with a problem. But his biggest problem wasn't logistics, like he couldn't figure out how to get to Nineveh, so he went the wrong way. His, his biggest problem wasn't even geopolitical. Like, well, if I go preach repentance and then you extend the lifespan of the Assyrian Empire, that'll be bad for me nationally. I got a lot of, you know, interest in Israel doing well, so I'm not, I'm not going to go do that. 
was a problem, but that wasn't his biggest problem. His biggest problem was theological. God was one-dimensional. Punishes the bad people, rewards the good, and Jonah is looking at God and has no idea how to understand that God is both merciful and just. That he can both punish sin and forgive sinners. How do those two things go together? I can imagine Jonah even, because there's a pretty good picture of it given to us in chapter 4, I can imagine him shouting at God, saying, God, who are you to call me to go preach this to them? Mercy, forgiveness, grace, it costs you nothing. And if I go there, it can cost me everything. Who are you to send me at the expense of my life to these people who have done such wicked things, not just to us, but to everyone around? No one wants to be taken over by these guys. No one wants to be under their oppression. You've said you were going to punish them. Who are you now to go back on that and tell me to go preach to them? Don't you understand? It could take my life. Destroy the country that I love. Why would I do that? I think it's, the answer isn't in Jonah. But I imagine if God responded back, he'd say, Jonah, if you only knew what it cost me. If you only knew what it cost me to show this mercy, to show this grace, to show this forgiveness, don't you know, you, there's no way for you to know, but in the future there's going to come another prophet, one who doesn't just have the words of God, but who is the word of God. And this other prophet is going to come, and you know, he only identifies himself with one prophet from the Old Testament, from Jonah. He says, if you understand Jonah, you'll understand me. I'm the greater Jonah, the better Jonah. And he won't just be another prophet or another person. God says he'll, he'll, he'll be God himself. He'll be me, my son, taking on human form. So he could give up his life for Ninevites, for Assyrians, and even rebellious missionaries like you and me and Jonah. So showing this grace is going to cost everything to God. When Jonah was given the mission, hey, go here, preach forgiveness, you might die. He said, I'm going the other way. When Jesus was given the mission, go here, preach forgiveness, you will die. He said, I will do that for each of us. As we keep walking through Jonah, we're going to see again and again the story of Jesus, the character of Jesus come out as the greater Jonah surfaces from this text. And as we continue to encounter God's grace through the world's worst missionary, through a reluctant prophet, through a man with everything to lose, he had everything to gain. We get to come face-to-face -face with God's grace ourselves and see how we respond. Pray with me. God, in Jonah, you've given us a very human prophet, and even as I go over these words, this, this picture of him from these first three verses, I'm personally just, again, convicted that you have called 
Jonah, you've called each of us in the same way that you've called Jonah to get up and go, but you have promised that you will be with us to the end of the age, that all authority is yours over every nation, every tribe, every fish, every storm, every plant, every worm. God, as you call us to go, let us first be transformed by your grace as we gaze on your goodness to us in the gospel of Jesus. And being so transformed, help us to get up and go as you have called. In Jesus' name, amen.